Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the dueling decisions of two federal judges ahead of Friday's deadline when the ruling by the Texas anti-abortion zealot Judge Matthew Kaczmarek for a nationwide ban on an abortion medication will go into effect. We'll investigate other cases before the FDA which would have the opposite effect of improving access to the drug Mifepristone, with 18 states' attorney generals suing the FDA for overregulation that is not justified by the drug's safety. Joining us is Rachel Reboucher, who is the Interim Dean and Professor of Law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law, a leading scholar in reproductive health law, feminist legal theory, and family law. She is the author of Governance Feminism, an introduction, and the editor of Feminist Judgments, Family Law Opinions Rewritten. We'll discuss her article at The Guardian, which she co-authored with David Cohen and Greer Donnelly. To protect abortion access, the FDA should decline to enforce a Mifepristone ban. Then we will look into the intellectual leader of an insurgent wing of the Republican Party that wants to abandon support for Ukraine and concentrate on confronting China over Taiwan. Joining us is Jacob Halbrun, a senior editor at The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. The author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic. And we will discuss his article at Politico, Elbridge Colby wants to finish what Donald Trump started, meet the conservative intellectual seeking to remake the GOP's foreign policy. Then finally, we'll assess the new rules the FBA laid out today designed to ensure that two-thirds of new passenger cars and a quarter of new heavy trucks sold in the U.S. are all electric by 2032. Joining us is Luke Tonichel, who is the Senior Director of the Clean Vehicles and Buildings of, of Clean Vehicles and Buildings in the Climate and Clean Energy Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council. His work has encouraged governments to adopt policies that advance clean fuels, and the development of energy-efficient vehicles, and we will discuss this huge step forward in addressing the largest source of climate pollution, transportation. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Rachel Reboucher, who's the Interim Dean and a Professor of Law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law, a leading scholar in reproductive health law, feminist legal theory, and family law. She is an author of Governance Feminism, an introduction, the editor of Feminist Judgments, Family Law, Opinions Rewritten, and the co-author of an article at The Guardian. To protect abortion access, the FDA should decline to enforce Mifepristone ban. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rachel Ribashi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And just to give a, a, an update on the status of these dueling lawsuits from the anti-abortion judge in um, Amarillo, Texas, uh, Kaczmarek, and the judge in Washington State, Thomas Rice. At this point, the DOJ lawyers have asked the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans for a stay, and the application has a deadline of noon on Thursday, tomorrow. They need more time to consider 
the questions, etc. Now, if the Fifth Circuit, which is notoriously conservative, decides not to do anything, then the government would then have to appeal to the Supreme Court for a stay probably again tomorrow, Thursday. And the government's application would then go to, of all people, of course, Justice Samuel Alito, who was responsible for the Dobbs decision. So is that a, a, a sketch of where we stand? I think that's a fair sketch. I think that we're waiting to see if the Fifth Circuit um, stays the order out of the Texas court. Um, and if it doesn't, as you say, the DOJ can go to the Supreme Court to ask for the same relief. I will say that the issues in this case are really very different than the issues in Dobbs, of course. Um, you know, it might be that a justice who voted with the majority in Dobbs because that justice does not believe the Constitution includes a right to abortion before viability, might not similarly think that a federal district court can suspend essentially 23 years of a drug's approval um, and, you know, acting on its own, uh, decide that the FDA approval no longer is in force. Um, th- those, you know, the, the, the case, this case uh, really does bring up fundamental questions about the FDA's power and the ability of the FDA to apply its expertise and discretion in approving a drug and to follow its process that's set out by congressional statute. And so I, I think it's it's not clear to me what the Supreme Court thinks uh, necessarily about how this case is unfolded. But in terms of your article to protect abortion access, the FDA should decline to enforce Mifepristone ban. You're not sort of suggesting lawlessness. I mean, there's been attacks on AOC for suggesting that she wants to take a lawless stand by just ignoring a federal judge's rulings. And of course, we have a president who's a former president and current candidate for the presidency essentially ignoring the law and um, a lot of the GOPs going along with him. So that's not obviously what you're up to here. I mean, you're, what, you're, what you're talking about is the fact that in terms of these dueling lawsuits, the lawsuit before Judge Thomas Rice in the U.S. District Court of the Eastern District of Washington is basically about the FDA's over-regulation and it's mm-hmm. challenging the extra restrictions that the agency have imposed on Mifepristone and they're trying to basically prevent limiting access to the drug, right? That's that's essentially what's what's happening here and that's what you're arguing, right? Yeah, so we, it, it, we are in no way arguing for the FDA or anyone to ignore the order of a federal district court. What we're arguing is that the only way to comply with both of these orders, which are completely contradictory, one court saying Ms. Pristone should stay on the market because it's very safe and there should be deference to the FDA's judgment, another court saying Ms. Pristone should be off the market, should not have been approved because it's not safe and no deference to the FDA's um, uh, evidence or expertise. The only way for the FDA, which is the party to both suits, to comply with to respect both these orders is to use its enforcement discretion. And just to be really clear, that's not a new thing. The FDA, like all agencies, has discretion about how it enforces its responsibilities. Um, There's a, a case that suggests that that's necessary for agencies to function because if they had a duty to enforce every infraction, uh, then it would it would you know it would it would be endless. Um, so the analogy I like to use is you know police officers do not have a duty to give everyone who breaks the speed limit a ticket. They can, um, but they tend to pull over people who are driving excessively fast or fast or in a risky way. They don't pull over people going 51 in a 50-mile-per-hour zone. And that is also because they have to use their judgment. (laughs) They have to make a decision about where their resources go. And 
it's the same with the FDA. The FDA can say, Texas has said that this that our approval of mifepristone is suspended, but we don't think, you know, in our judgment, this is a safe uh, and effective drug that's been on the market for 23 years. We're, we use our enforcement discretion, uh, uh, you know, as related to the manufacturers and distributors of this drug. So that that is very different than ignoring an, an order. So the lawsuit that was filed in Judge Rice's court in the Eastern District of Washington against the FDA was filed by 17 Democratic States Attorney General in the District of Columbia. And it Mm -hmm. challenged these, these extra restrictions. But the judge did not lift the additional restrictions, but ordered the FDA to maintain the status quo. In other words, that would mean that these 17 states in the District of Columbia would basically be able to to ignore a nationwide ban. Is that right? So the, those states, the, the parties to that court, that case, um, yeah, that, the, that order applies to them. And that order is essentially that for those markets, the FDA should not be permitted to withdraw or suspend Mifepristone's approval. But how that fits with what the Texas judge has done is, of course, what the attorneys general have asked the Judge Rice to clarify, um, because these decisions came out on the same day. It's not clear how they sit together. These are courts with, you know, the same powers. To, you know, they're, they're both federal district courts. Um, and so that's that's a question that uh that I think the the courts are going to have to answer. Right, but we discussed the path to resolve Matthew Kaczmarek's case uh, going through the Fifth Circuit and then to the Supreme Court. So what's the pathway for the other case? I mean, are they, they're going in parallel. Who's the ultimate uh, adjudicator? I guess the Supreme Court, right? Probably. Uh, uh, Ninth Circuit, I think, is the appellate court for the Washington sure. District Court. That. That that could be, you know, the uh, defendants, the FDA could appeal the decision to the Ninth Circuit. The attorneys general could appeal the aspect of the decision that doesn't lift the restrictions. Um, you know, but I think the, the most immediate issue is um, how these two decisions fit together. Well, they don't, though, do they, Rachel? <laughs> <laughs> They're conflicting really. opinions, are they not? Yeah, yeah, they are. Right. So in terms of the FDA over-regulating, I mean, so much attention, as your article points out, has, has been on uh, Matthew Kaczmarek and the, the judge shopping that obviously went on because he has such a reputation as being an anti-abortion zealot. They took the case to him, hoping for the very outcome that they got. There's been obviously a lot of attention on that, but not much paid to the other case that we're talking about here in Washington. And it raises the question, surely, of how much the FDA has deferred to the anti-abortion movement, particularly with Mifepristone. They've been very cautious about and about its access. And that's the argument, isn't it, by the 17 or 18 states' attorneys general, that they've, they've over-regulated this drug. They have not made it accessible, which is the opposite yeah, to I taking mean, I- it off the market. I think that the, you know, I don't think the court says that the FDA deferred to the anti-abortion movement, but certainly mifepristone is one of the most studied drugs on the planet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the process, the review process, you know, took some years. It has been reviewed and challenged over the course of years. The FDA, there have been copious studies of its effectiveness of its safety. And even though it is a very safe drug, um, it has restrictions on it that no other drug of its safety profile has. Um, and so in, in a sense, it is, it's, the FDA has always treated mifepristone based on its safety record uh, differently than, than other drugs. Well, when I say that the FDA appears to have deferred to the anti-abortion movement, I mean, they've been extremely cautious about the morning after pill, haven't they? 
I mean, obviously there have been lots of lawsuits, but it seems that in the case of both Mifepristone and the morning after pill, they've gone out of their way to be as fair as possible. Is that your understanding? I think the FDA just recently issued guidance that the that Plan A, Plan B is not an abortion drug. Um, it is contraception, um, and has really is taken steps to try to push home that message that Plan B is not a different kind of abortion. Um, but I think it has been cautious about it. Um, it was cautious in approving Plan B for um, you know broader use and for use of people who are under 18. And, um, you know, there's been a kind of step-by-step opening of access uh, that, you know, arguably like Mifepristone didn't, you know, didn't necessarily correspond to any adverse drugs, any adverse effects caused by the drug. So would it be fair to say that the anti-abortion movement who brought the suit to Judge Matthew Kaczmarek is there a way to compromise with these absolutists? I think, you know, I think the end goal for a lot of people who do not support abortion is to end abortion everywhere. And I think the idea that pills can be mailed to people might be available through pharmacies in the future, can be ordered online internationally. I think that is a real threat to that goal of ending abortion everywhere. And so I think that's, you know, um, I'm not sure what the compromise position is, if that's what you believe. So what then, to your mind, Rachel, should the FDA do? You're suggesting that they don't have to break the law, they just have to enforce the regime that they have in place. I mean, apparently the pharmaceutical companies, you know, Big Pharma, unanimously have sent briefs, have they not? To yeah, I mean, the courts. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, the implications of this case are really, um, you know, could be very significant. If a district court can tell the FDA 23 years later that its approval is stayed, that a drug that has been approved for almost a quarter of a century is now no longer approved that totally upends the incentives and disincentives of pharmaceutical companies in research and development and all the money and years and time that it takes to get a drug to market. If a court could undo it based on its own evidence of the drug's safety, of the drug's efficacy. Um, And so I'm not surprised by pharma's position. Um, I think that this is a case that's about a medication abortion, particularly for the plaintiffs, but it's a case that ha- could have implication for other drugs. So then the issues involved here are whether or not facts and science will prevail over the opinion of one federal judge, the personal opinion the, of one federal judge. It, yeah, it has to be noted that, you know, between the Washington case and the Texas case, they're just diametrically opposed takes on evidence around uh, misoprestone safety. But surely the Washington case and the FDA's case is that uh, it's a scientific one. 23 years well, later, I mean, that, massive right, amounts right, of right. data, testing, etc. And has there, has there been any equivalence of data presented in Matthew Kaczmarek's opinion? Right. So the, the Times ran a great piece on all the studies that prove misoprestone's safety and efficacy over the decades, and um, that there has been consensus on those points. Um, And so that's the other part of this that's troubling to a lot of folks, is a court's, you know, turning a blind eye to that evidence and relying on its own evidence uh, offered in briefs and by the plaintiffs of the harms of abortion, that people experience regret and experience depression, and uh, that there are risks Mifepristone that have been understated by the FDA when there's just not evidence that that's true. If anything, the FDA has studied very closely Mifepristone. So, and what happens then if nothing is done to stop the Matthew Kaczmarek's opinion? It goes into effect, doesn't it? On uh, is it Friday night or Saturday? I think 
I think it's probably Friday, and then it'll be for, you know, an appellate court to overturn or to reinterpret or to affirm. Well, Rachel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with Rachel Rubbishay, who's the Interim Dean and a Professor of Law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law, a leading scholar in reproductive health law, feminist legal theory, and family law. She is an author of Governance Feminism, an introduction, and editor of Feminist Judgments, Family Law Opinions Rewritten, and co-author of an article at The Guardian to protect abortion access the FDA should decline to enforce a Mifepristone ban. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into the intellectual leader of an insurgent wing of the Republican Party that wants to abandon support for Ukraine and concentrate on confronting China over Taiwan. You and me and dine me when I was your girl Promised if I'd be your wife you'd show me the world but all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. All these years I've stayed at home. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jacob Harbron, who's a senior editor at the National Interest, a columnist at The Spectator, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He's the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, and previously he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic. And he has an article at Politico, Elbridge Colby's Wants to Finish What Donald Trump Started, Meet the Conservative Intellectual Seeking to Remake the GOP's Foreign Policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Halbert. Thank you, Ian. So, Elbridge Colby, otherwise known as Bridge, was in the Trump administration's Pentagon, and he actually he drafted their um, Asia policy, I guess. And it was a national it was a national strategy document on elevating China as the premier threat to the United States, rather than focusing on terrorism or Russia. Right, and now he's making inroads into what I refer to as the pro-Putin caucus in the House and Senate, and particularly in the Senate with J.D. Vance, who I understand is making some inroads. So why do they believe, and you've interviewed Elbridge Colby, why do they believe that defending Ukraine and defending Taiwan are mutually exclusive? The argument is that the Republican Party needs to jettison the Reagan era and then the George W. Bush era belief that there are no limits on American power. And they see that as a, as a neoconservative doctrine that America can create its own realities abroad. Their argument is no, our power and resources are limited and that the primary threat to the United States is not a dilapidated Russia, but a resurgent China that has imperial aspirations and seeks to drive the United States out of Asia. Well, I don't know that they're paying attention to the reality of what a war in China would involve. Do they recognize what a catastrophe that would be? I mean, just just in this recent batch of leaks from the Pentagon, there's one of them's about uh, a new Chinese hypersonic missile that the U.S. has no defense against. So I don't understand how you could want a war with or feel you need to prepare for a war with China, which would be catastrophic, at the same time, supporting Ukraine on the cheap because the, the Pentagon recognizes that the Ukrainians are fighting a war for the West, for NATO, by degrading the Russian military to the point where it's almost non-existent. So I, I, well, tell me why these are, people are considered strategists because it just seems so strategically blind. Well, there, there are many layers to this. Their contention is that the United States can prepare for war with China, and by preparing, we will deter 
a conflict. Their belief is that we are speeding the likelihood of a conflict that we have rhetorically engaged in. We have Joe Biden has upped, in essence, American security guarantees to Taiwan by, by saying several times that the United States would, in fact, become involved in a war should China attack Taiwan. Their argument is that our commitments exceed our capacities and that if we are going to defend Taiwan, then we need to up our military game in that region. And they're tearing their hair out over the shipment of American military firepower to Ukraine, which they regard, I think a number of them regard it as a legitimate Russian sphere of influence. So the argument would be, why should we exert any American power to defend hapless Ukraine. Now, I will I would note that this argument is reminiscent of the argument of the Republican Party in the wake of World War Two. You remember the Republican Party had been isolationist before World War Two. Then they maneuvered themselves into arguing that we should follow an Asia first policy. That that's how they got beyond their isolationism. And they said that the Europeans were a bunch of moochers and that we should not be defending socialist regimes in Britain and on the continent, focus our efforts instead on Asia. Now, how compelling you find these arguments is another question and something we should discuss. Well, I find the arguments absurd to the extent that what we're supplying Ukraine with is a lot of junk, frankly, that I'm hearing from the Ukrainians, from high-level officials over there, particularly in the defense intelligence arena, that a lot of the American equipment is not working. Stinger missiles without batteries, Humvees that don't work, etc., etc. And apparently the, the Pentagon is getting rid of a lot of junk and using the money then to buy a fresh batch. None of the really top-of-the-line stuff is being sent, really. HIMARS, for example, is a 1990s technology. So, again, I don't see this as being an honest debate. Do you? Well, here's the question, which I, I don't actually agree with Bridge and Colby, and I, I, he knows that. Um, I was simply trying to convey that there is a rising faction in the Republican Party that is making this argument, and it's going to be extremely influential with any Republican candidate, whether it's Ron DeSantis, who referred to Ukraine as a territorial dispute, or Donald Trump, who we know would hand Ukraine over on a silver platter to Vladimir Putin. Trump was gushing last night over dictators such as Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un. The question is, if we were to follow this council and essentially either abandon Ukraine or put a tourniquet on support, what message would that send to China? Now, to me, it would be open season on Taiwan. If the United States is not prepared to stand by Ukraine, then we're certainly not prepared to stand by Taiwan either. So did you put that argument to uh, Colby? I did. And look, I, I can't really, you know, I, I'm... I'm trying to convey his views. I'm, I can't speak for him. Sure. I think he argues, he, his argument, his counter-argument would be no, that in fact we are wasting our resources in Ukraine and failing to prepare for a far more urgent crisis and that the Chinese would not interpret our cut to Ukraine as dispositive for Taiwan. I happen to disagree. To me, it seems like elemental logic. If the United States prepared to abandon ruthlessly Ukraine and, and hand it over as a meal for Putin to devour and to overthrow the, the rules of the international order that way, to, to me, it would be a calamity. 
So Elbridge Colby, as we mentioned, um, he joined the Defense Department in 2017 as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development and then seemed to rise very quickly and ended up crafting the Trump administration's 2018 National Defense Strategy, which focused on China as a principal uh, threat to the United States. And, of course, we had recently an Air Force general saying that we'd be at war with China next year. So all of this talk, making it sound like it's inevitable, I think in itself is dangerous, isn't it, Jacob? Well, as we know, nothing is inevitable in history. And China itself is, the danger here is of making China 10 feet tall the way we did the Soviet Union. To me personally, Vladimir Putin seems like a much more reckless leader than Xi Jinping. I don't see the Chinese as embarking upon military adventurism, particularly since crossing the Taiwan Strait is a daunting military proposition. And they have the example of the catastrophe, the imbroglio that Putin has created in Ukraine for his regime. So I tend to be much more cautious about ascribing these uh, immediate intentions to China. I do not believe that we need to end up in a war with them. I also think they have severe internal difficulties, the economic and with their population, the, the slow, slowing and the growth of the Chinese population that are going to render it more difficult for them to maintain their great power status in coming decades. So at bottom, I'm actually quite optimistic about American influence and power around the world. I, I think there's a measure almost of defeatism that is entering into the rhetoric. I'm not quite sure why China is being elevated into a superpower that is, that is going to do, threaten or dominate the United States. Well, you only have to go back to the missile gap, the bomber gap, to the rise of Reagan during the Carter years. They've always, the Hawks have, have always, and the shills for the military-industrial complex have always painted the U.S. as being puny, and the Russians had these big missiles, and we had these puny little penis-envy missiles. I mean, this is an old saw. But the problem that with Taiwan is China's problem because they had the one country, two systems, regime with Hong Kong. And that was meant to signal to Taiwan that what we're doing in Hong Kong is going to will work out with you guys. And then, of course, look what happened in Hong Kong. Under, under the more militant uh, Xi Jinping, they eventually took over and, and have tightened their grip. So the Taiwanese are basically, they're, they're, they don't buy the idea of uh, one country, two systems. But still, yes, we do have a proclivity for inflating foreign threats, as, as, as you noted. I would say that, that what Bridges' arguments are doing is forcing the Republican Party to confront whether it really wants to become an isolationist party or whether it is going to remain militarily engaged abroad. I mean, he's trying to thread the needle. He's arguing that there is a foreign threat, that it is China, and that is provoking a, a split in the, in the Republican Party because you essentially have three wings. You have the Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell wing, which is essentially neoconservative. Then you have Colby in the middle, and then you have the right-wing isolationists who don't want to intervene anywhere abroad. Well, but is there any sense of history here in terms of the Cold War ending, not necessarily because of the number of missiles and nuclear weapons we had pointing at Russia, but because of rock and roll, MTV and blue jeans? I mean, it's loosely called soft power. That seems to be China's Achilles heel, is that it is the most ubiquitous dictatorship, surveillance state on the planet. Its own people recently, many, many uh, risked enormous amounts of dangers by going public when a 
building under COVID lockdown caught on fire and people were burned alive. And there, there was a spontaneous reaction amongst the Chinese people, which was quite extraordinary, given how repressive the regime is. So there's clearly a yearning for democracy in that country, at least amongst, you know, we, we don't know because we can't figure it out. But I'm sure there's, this certainly makes Xi Jinping worry, doesn't it? Why is he so adamantly opposed to democracy and the rule of law? Because the Chinese regime, obviously, is determined to retain power at almost any cost. And they saw that the Soviet Union went under by what they viewed as a weak uh, and concessive leadership. And, mm. and they've ruthlessly tried to stomp out any incipient signs of, dis of dissent within China. However, none of this precludes that, as in the Soviet Union, we never really know how stable these regimes are. I, w I wouldn't preclude that China would collapse in a heap in, and that we are, again, overestimating its military power and underestimating the degree of dissatisfaction and ferment in the country itself. And part of the problem here is that in Washington, not that many people actually travel to China or know what the country is like itself. The cultural aspect is missing. And because we people focus so exclusively on national security and on defense theories about the behavior of countries that are rising powers. Right. Well, I recently had a conversation with Scott Kennedy at, at CSIS, who he spent you know, over 30 years traveling through China, and the top Chinese expert on the United States sort of did a swap where the top Chinese expert traveled to the United States, and he at the same time traveled through China, and they wrote an article together about their observations. And the one thing that came out of that exchange was that what is really needed, as opposed to making military threats or military preparedness for an inevitable war, is people-to-people -people contacts, that that ought to be doubled and tripled and more Chinese tourists should come here and more American tourists should go to China, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any, any sense that the two issues that I brought up, Jacob soft power and people-to-people -people exchanges. Is that on the radar with Bridge Colby at all? No, I mean, to be fair, Bridge is a defense expert. I think that we should be pointing the finger at the Biden administration, which has taken an increasingly hawkish position towards China and is, is not exempt from these impulses. I think there's a broader problem in Washington, D.C. itself where the tone of the debate has become virulently anti-Chinese across the board. And I'm somewhat astonished by the rapidity with which it has occurred. Right. Well, they have that ridiculous Congressional House Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. They had a hearing that was just ludicrous. I mean, pure racist stupidity. And Krishnamurti, the congressman, is, is, gave it a bipartisan seal of approval. The, the, the fears and apprehensions about China, you see them on about various aspects, including TikTok, uh, mm -hmm. are quite exaggerated, I think. I think there's always there been a lack of confidence in the United States. I think George F. Kennan talked about this in his memoirs, too. It is interesting how easily how easily you can frighten Americans with with the prospect of a foreign power uh, making inroads into its society. Right. That we somehow we can't handle a bunch of teenage kids dancing on on social media, swapping, you know, pictures of their kittens and and etc. It is extraordinary. So, just in closing, though. Do you think that there is a new foreign policy that Bridge Colby is, you know, the leading advocate for? Is that actually having traction? Because certainly he's, he's having traction with 
J.D. Vance and Tucker Carlson and those people, right? And Fox News. So that's not necessarily encouraging. Well, I think he is the avatar of uh, a new foreign policy inside the GOP, but the jury is out whether he will actually succeed or not. There is a significant establishment Republican old guard, uh, John Cornyn, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, that is committed to supporting Ukraine. Uh, but then, as this, unless Ukraine scores some kind of a victory in coming months over Russia, I think the debate over continuing to fund the Ukraine war effort is going to become very fractious inside the con- Congress. And I think that the views that Bridge Colby is enunciating will gain increasing force within the Republican Party. But just in closing, Putin is not doing well on the battlefield. His best play would be to get the U.S. Congress to cut funds for Ukraine. So can't you make the argument that these people are useful idiots for Vladimir Putin? Well, you you could. Um, I think that the Ukrainians are going to need to score a victory, some kind of a victory in their offensive, or I think patience is going to wear out in the United States, unfortunately. Well, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Harbron, who is a senior editor at The National Interest, a columnist at The Spectator, and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He's the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, and previously he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic. And he has an article at Politico, Elbridge Colby Wants to Finish What Donald Trump Started, Meet the Conservative Intellectual Seeking to Remake the GOP's Foreign Policy. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the new rules the EPA laid out today designed to ensure that two-thirds of new passenger cars and a quarter of new heavy trucks sold in the U.S. are all electric by 2032. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Luke Tonneschel, who's a Senior Director of the Clean Vehicles and Buildings Group in the Clean Energy Program at the Natural Resources Defence Council. His work has encouraged governments to adopt policies that advance clean fuels and development of energy-efficient vehicles. Welcome to Background Briefing, Luke Tonneschel. Thank you, Ian. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Luke. And the EPA have just laid out new rules which will facilitate, if not propel, electric vehicles, both in terms of new passenger cars and heavy trucks. It's an ambitious plan, uh, two plans designed to ensure two-thirds of all new passenger cars and a quarter of new heavy trucks sold in the United States are all electric by 2032. So I guess from your point of view, this is pretty encouraging. Yes, Ian. Today's announcement is a big and it's big and it's important because of its impact on addressing climate change and public health. It's really important to understand that what the EPA is doing today, and they've released this as a proposal, a proposed rule that they're putting forth today, is that they're putting forth new emission standards, which means there are new new requirements on how much new vehicles can pollute. And this is this is not a new activity for EPA. This is actually something they've been doing for decades and decades to make sure that the the cars that we see in new vehicle showrooms are getting cleaner over time because we know 
We must reduce pollution both to address our climate problem and to make sure that the air is clean enough for all of us to breathe. So this is this is really actually just a step in the in a pathway that the EPA has been on uh, for decades. But today is 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 the newest step there. And um, it really underscores the the need to be ambitious and put in place the technology that we have on the streets today across the board so that we can address climate change and and, uh, public health. But apparently the head of the EPA was supposed to announce these new policies in Detroit, surrounded by American-made all-electric vehicles. But there was resistance from the United Auto Workers, and I don't know about the car manufacturers themselves, so he had to move the venue to EPA headquarters in Washington. So what's the problem there? What's the problem with the UAW? Or did indeed uh, the big three auto workers also not want this uh, unveiling in front of their cars? Well, I think it's important to understand that this. there were two announcements today. There were standards for cars that were made today, but also standards for heavy-duty freight trucks. And so, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, strictly a a Detroit-themed announcement today uh, in the sense of just automakers, but it was also included the heavy truck manufacturers or standards that will impact the heavy truck manufacturers. And um, I think what you'll see is that the workers um, in these industries understand that this is a gradual transition that we've been on for decades in terms of moving to cleaner vehicle technology and that electric vehicles are the technology that's that's coming forth to, that can offer the, um, the lowest pollution levels um, and really basically uh, end pollution from vehicles. They want to be part of manufacturing those vehicles and they absolutely can be and will be as time goes on. And so um, at this point, it's, it's, we know that the, the manufacturing of electric vehicles, although it's happening in the United States, it's not happening yet at the scale that's needed um, to meet these standards, although these standards ramp up over time. And, and I'll note that they don't, these standards don't go into effect until 2027. That's when they start. Um, and so there's time to keep building the manufacturing infrastructure and the jobs associated with that here in the U.S. One other thing um, we've seen happen over the last year has been the um, the passage of major legislation, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which has put in place huge um, incentives for that domestic manufacturing to have have manufacturing all through the supply chain for electric vehicles happen here in the U.S. And that um, will ensure that the U.S. can be a leading manufacturer, not only um, for vehicles sold here, but really for vehicles and technologies used around the world um, built by American workers. So how do the rules specifically work in terms of what was announced today, the proposal to ensure that 67% of sales of new light-duty passenger vehicles from sedans to pickup trucks will be all electric by 2032, and then that 46% of sales of new medium and heavy-duty trucks and delivery vans, etc., will be all electric by the same deadline. Right. That that those those penetration numbers for in terms of sales. Uh, market of electric vehicles that is what the EPA is is projecting will be the way that the manufacturers meet the standard but it's important to understand that the manufacturers actually have choices they don't they don't necessarily need to sell um, that many electric vehicles as long as they are meeting the standard which is based on an emissions level it just so happens that when EPA looked at the whole range of technologies, whether that's improving internal combustion engine vehicles or deploying more vehicles that have electric powertrains, 
to meet the kinds of emissions levels that are that are needed, both from a climate perspective and a public health perspective, um, they their modeling shows that manufacturers are likely to meet those standards using electric vehicle technologies. So, so really, these standards are um, are all about setting an emissions level, and then um, and and uh, and giving the manufacturers the option of deploying the technologies they they want to use to meet those emissions levels. It just it 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 just works out from the way that electric vehicles are becoming more and more cost effective, um, and they offer huge fuel savings for consumers. That they expect that that's what the automakers are increasingly going to produce um, to line up with those emission standards. So, in other words, if you were a General Motors or Chrysler or Ford, you can still make hybrids. I mean, not making the the old traditional cars. You're phasing that out, obviously, but you can have hybrids for a while and and at a certain date, because the emission standards become more stringent, you have to have electric vehicles. Is that the way it's calibrated? Right. So there's a a fleet average um, emissions level that they have to meet, and they and it's it's based on a sales weighted average of all the different types of vehicles that a, that a manufacturer sells, and it's actually related to the size of the vehicles. And they look at the mix of vehicles that each manufacturer makes, and it, it doesn't go all the way to zero. The emissions level doesn't go all the way to zero. So that means that they can be making some vehicles that are still combustion engine vehicles, even in a 2030 time frame. But it goes down to a level where they would have to put more and more technology, maybe it's high, you know, better and better, better hybrids on gasoline vehicles to meet that really low emissions level at a fleet average uh, basis. So the expectation is that these manufacturers that have already been promising and um, and rolling out more and more electric vehicles, that they'll continue on that trajectory and continue to grow the number of electric vehicles that they offer for sale. And then that will be their primary strategy for meeting these tighter pollution standards. But you mentioned electric cars getting cheaper. They are much more expensive, and a lot of that's to do with the batteries, now, the price of lithium has gone, has gone down, but is there any possibility that that the price of these batteries will go down? Or I thought they were, they were scouring the world to find minerals to meet the demand. Yeah, EPA looks very closely at, at these cost numbers, and the expectation is that the, that the overall cost of electric vehicles will go down, and that is, as you say, a... Um, a big factor of what happens with batteries and EPA is, is not doing just their own projections, but they're taking what they know about what the industry is planning to do. The other thing about what, and this is broadly about vehicle pollution standards and what they've achieved in general is that when, when EPA sets out this marker in a future year, they create certainty for, for all the related industries in terms of what kind of investments they need to make. And so even if the technology is at a certain stage today, once now that now the standards telling all of those industries, this is where we need to go. This is where the country is going and that informs their investment strategies. So we can expect to see, uh, continued and more growing investment in, the battery supply chains, the electric vehicle powertrain um, development and production. And because of the incentives in the in Inflation Reduction Act, those investments are going to happen uh, heavily here in the United States. Well, President Biden has pledged to cut the country's emissions in half by 2030 and to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere by 2050. So... If you have more and more electric cars and plug-in hybrids, that creates an, a greater demand for electricity. 
and it would make absolutely no sense if that electricity was generated from coal or other dirty sources. So is there a parallel program here to make sure that you have clean vehicles, but you also have clean energy sources to charge those vehicles? That's absolutely right. And it's important to understand that charging an electric vehicle today is still cleaner than driving a gasoline vehicle. So charging and driving an electric vehicle, because electric vehicles are so efficient in their use of energy, is still cleaner than driving around in a gasoline vehicle. So that's today. But we are also continuing to increase the amount of renewable power that we're producing in this country. And um, EPA is getting ready to also put in place a program that's going to accelerate that movement from fossil fuel power to more renewable power. And so we're already in a good place today to, to use electric vehicles, but that is only going to get better over time because the power sector is going to be cleaning up again in response to the programs that the federal government is is putting in place. You know, one thing that's interesting about an electric car, it's the only car that gets cleaner as you drive it. And that's because, you know, you in year one, you're plugging into the grid as it is in that first year. But in 10 years from now, that grid's going to be even cleaner, which means your electric car is responsible for even fewer emissions. So this is uh, good news all around, right? It is good news. It, it is definitely something that our nation needs, both from our economy perspective, to make our, ourselves more resilient and to address climate change and to um, reduce the pollution that, that harms people in communities around the country. Well, Luke Tonichel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Luke Tonichel, who's a senior director of the Clean Vehicles and Buildings Group in the Clean Energy Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council. His work has encouraged governments to adopt policies that advance clean fuels and the development of energy-efficient vehicles. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice Singing something to me One more light goes out in a